This B-Podcast Network show is presented by IXL. Loved and trusted by more than 1 million teachers, IXL enhances your teaching and takes work off your plate so you can make an even bigger impact on your students. IXL delivers personalized learning across a comprehensive pre-K-12 curriculum, including math, language arts, science, and social studies, and helps you assess student performance through actionable, real-time insights. Strengthen daily instruction, close knowledge gaps quickly, and set every student up for success. Want to bring IXL to your school? Learn more at IXL.com B-E. That's IXL.com B-E. We are proud to partner with MyFlex Learning. MyFlex Learning is a scheduling platform that helps middle and high schools meet the individual needs of all students. Students can easily create and manage time for flex blocks, wind time, activity periods, RTI, counselor and teacher appointments, and so much more. Even my favorite, Synergy Time. And with its built-in accountability tool and reporting features, my flex learning solves your challenges around getting kids where they need to be and understanding how flex time is spent. Make flex time work for you. Visit myflexlearning.com BE to learn more and receive $500 off your first year. That's myflexlearning.com slash B-E. Welcome to the Cybertraps podcast. I'm Jethro Jones coming to you from Phoenix, Arizona this week. I'm the founder of the B Podcast Network and author of the books School X and How to Be a Transformative Principal. I'm a former principal at all levels of K-12 education. Greetings, everybody. I'm Frederick Lane, an author, attorney, and educational consultant, normally based in Brooklyn, New York, but for the next couple of weeks, uh, reaching you from Accra, Ghana. I'm the author of 10 books, including most recently, Cybertraps for Educators 2.0, Raising Cyberethical Kids, and Cybertraps for Expecting Moms and Dads. Jethro and I have teamed up to bring timely, entertaining, and useful information to teachers, parents, and others about the risks arising from the use and misuse of digital devices. Over the coming weeks and months, we'll be talking to some of the world's leading experts from the fields of education, parenting, sociology, and cyber safety. Join us as we look at what it takes to better navigate our increasingly high-tech world. For more information or to donate to our work, please visit centerforcyberethics.org. The Cybertraps podcast is a production of the Center for Cyberethics, a 501c3 independent nonpartisan educational institute dedicated to the study and promotion of cyber ethics as a positive social force through research, curricular development, publishing and media, professional training, and public advocacy. Hey there, Jethro. Greetings. Greetings. Hello, and I'm excited to get an update on what is going on in Ghana. It is a blast. It continues to just be a fascinating trip. Uh, A little bit quieter at the end of this week than the beginning, but I can bring you up to speed pretty quickly. Um, Awo set up a meeting on Monday with the uh, Cyber Crimes Unit of the Ghana Police Service. So they have a national police force uh, that operates out of Accra, not far from where I'm staying. And the Cyber Crimes Unit is basically an entire floor of this office building uh, on the police compound. So I got to go up and meet the director of the Cyber Crimes Unit, uh, some of the folks working in his office. There's the possibility that 
at some point during my last two weeks here, I'll get to do a presentation for the Cyber Crimes Unit on some of the issues that we face in the United States with respect to um, inappropriate images of children, trafficking, grooming of children, and so forth, all of which they face here as well. Um, and then um, obviously take questions and, and maybe develop some future uh, networking that would be useful not only for the folks here in Ghana, but also the people I deal with in the United States. One of the things that came out of that that was really interesting is that a huge concern for them is mobile gaming, that kids, um, particu particularly in the rural regions, are targeted by people who are trying to get them to gamble using mobile phones and playing games of chance on their phones and so forth. So um, when we talk about gaming in the United States, we tend to be thinking about the you know, the Wii's and the Xboxes and the PS1's and all the rest of it. Here, it's actually gambling. It's literally money out the door. So yeah. uh, slightly different concern. Yeah, and slight correction. I, I hate to do this to you in the podcast, Fred, but we're on PS5 now, not PS1. <laughs> so... And that is a totally legit correction. <laughs> it, it reveals the amount of time I spend gaming. I should have just stopped at PS and then let That's people right. fill in. <laughs> all right. By the it's time I get home, it'll probably be PS7. Um, so that meeting was interesting. Um, I'll be curious to see if those meetings or that presentation comes together. Uh, things can be, you know, it take a little bit of time to develop over here. So um, yeah. I'm not sure if we'll have time to put that together. Um, the one so other let me, meeting that let me ask you a question yeah, on on this sure. piece. Um, do you do you feel so you mentioned last week that their adoption, especially in schools and stuff of of what kids are using devices and such is uh, is lower than what it is here. Do you feel like they are um, behind where we are, like dealing with things we dealt with 10, 15 years ago? Or do you feel like they're dealing with all the same things, but just on a smaller scale because not as many people have devices as as people have devices here? What's your take on that? Yeah, I think it's pretty clear it's door number two, Jethro. Uh -huh. I mean, the issue is that any of the kids who have a device are immediately confronted with the same issues the kids around the world are confronted with. There's no There's no 2005 internet here. You know, if kids are going online, they're getting the full-blown 2023 experience right. with all that that says. So, you know, for the folks who are in the cyber crime unit, their challenge is is keeping up with precisely the same issues, you know, that law enforcement in the United States faces. On a, on a level of scale, it's, it is lower just because the penetration of electronic devices is much lower. Um, but you begin to see exactly the same thing. Like most, if not all of the adults that I've seen around Accra have devices. And we know in any society that if the adults have devices, when they upgrade, those devices flow down to the kids. So the percentage of kids who will have access to devices is only going to grow here, just inevitably, because of the way that the um, sort of development cycle of devices goes. Yeah, I mean, that definitely makes sense, but it's something that you, at least I didn't really think a lot about. You think about 
countries that are behind where we're at with some things that they don't have access to everything that we have. But when it comes to the internet, then everybody does have access essentially to the same things. And, and so that's where one of the things that, that I talk about a lot is that the difference between us and kids these days is that <laughs> when when you and I were kids um and as we were growing up we were learning all of these things um like as we aged and saw the development of them kids who were born like my daughter that I'm here in Phoenix with after 2007 uh she was born when the iPhone came out and so oh, yeah. like yeah. that is yeah her whole life has existed uh, with this technology available. And so she is exposed to all of that stuff in a much different way than you and I were, that it was a new different thing to her. It's always existed. And, and so anybody just now getting that technology, it's always existed for them. And I think that that's a really interesting perspective to take. And uh, they don't they don't interact with it the same as you and I do. And um, they, one of my favorite examples is when people push really hard on a uh, touch screen, like a like an iPhone or an Android screen, uh, because in the old days, touch screens, you did have to push hard because they weren't capacitive. And so they didn't they didn't sense a, a light touch. They only sensed you literally pushing hard on that pixel to get it to register and and now, you know, no kid would ever understand that. And if they go touch a screen, it doesn't react immediately. Then they're like, it's not touch screen. And I just find that really fascinating. It is fascinating. And and I feel seen. I feel seen as someone who grew up with <laughs> thus more difficult to use touch screens. But I do find myself running into that. I have a Dell XPS and it's a touch screen. Works really well. I don't use it a lot like that because it's kind of awkward. But I will occasionally find myself using my wife's MacBook Air, which is a few years older. And it, it can be very frustrating that I can't do anything with, yeah. with touch on the screen. So um, I totally understand where the kids are coming from. I think that um, my superficial impression is that there's a lot more um, uptake of Android phones here than there are of iPhones. So the, the technological climate is a little bit different. Because uh, Android phones are you know, orders of magnitude cheaper, uh, particularly given some of the foreign models that you can get over here that you couldn't get in the United States. And of course, for them to have access to an open operating system reduces cost even further. Yeah. Uh, so th that's something I've observed. And, um, you know, then it's just a question of, you know, it's funny that they're, they're there are such basic services that are still being extended out to the you know the rural regions of Ghana um, that the idea that even a thirty percent of the kids in the country have phones is pretty remarkable. Um, but I would suspect over the next three to four years that'll come fifty percent, maybe fifty five. It'll grow pretty quickly here, and I think that's one of the things actually that really worries the cyber crimes unit and people who are in positions like Owl in terms of child safety. Because the, the fact that they have access to the entire internet means that culturally and socially and sexually, they're being dumped into the deep end of the pool right away. And it just, it's, it's a ton of issues. That actually though, offers a really good segue to the next piece of my update because Perfect. on Tuesday, 
on Tuesday, Awo uh, had set up a visit to uh, something called the Primus Hybrid School. So the schooling system over here is is pretty hodgepodge. Um, and a lot of parents, if they can afford to do so, and, and according to Awo, even if they really can't, will send their kids to private school, and Primus is one of them. So this would be definitely a middle, you know, the, the equivalent of a middle class school in the United States. And we got to spend an hour talking to kids in the fifth, sixth grade. Um, and it was just fascinating. And this is a school actually, which does not allow the kids to bring devices to the school. But it was obvious that all of these kids had access to a device, whether it was, you know, a family device or their own mobile or tablet back at home you know that they left there and we got into this really really sophisticated conversation with them about the usage of devices they are concerned about terms of service that software puts in place they don't like being told that they have to accept it they're worried about the use of their private information by companies they went ballistic when I asked them if they had any concerns about how their parents use devices. That launched an entire 15-minute oh, wow. conversation. <laughs> Every single kid in the classroom had something to say about that. It was it was amazing. I believe that. That is awesome. So yes, yeah. dealing with the same struggles that we deal with here in the States. Absolutely. Right? And and you know, I think because the school spends a lot of time talking about it, these kids are absolutely up to speed on all of the kind of privacy issues that you know we see here in the united states that people talk about in the uk so on and so forth it was really really informative and impressive honestly yeah that's very cool um so uh nerdy education question how many kids were in the classes that you were speaking to it was just this one class, so we're going to go with a very small sample size, <laughs> n equals one. But uh, this class had, I think, uh, seventeen or eighteen students. Okay, interesting. Yeah, uh, yeah, very fascinating. I mean, it's a school, of, a school of about five hundred kids, uh, privately owned. We met with the actual owner of the school, so corporate school, corporate private school. Uh, not corporate, I shouldn't say. I mean, it's a business. I, corporate's the wrong word. I don't know if there are any others associated with it. But yeah. uh, we met with the woman who is one of the owner or the owner of the school. And then we met with the principal of what we would call the middle school. And she was the one who directed us to this particular classroom. Yeah, interesting. And it was very funny. The owner of the school came in and sat down for a few minutes and she stood up at one point and said, you know, the kids will talk better if I'm not here. And yeah. she just loved it. <laughs> it was absolutely <laughs> true. Uh, no, she totally gets it. And I I just had so much fun. I really did. It was a blast. That's awesome. Very cool. Um, yeah. All right. So talk about the Pan-Africa, uh, uh, what did you call it? Pan-Africa webinar for parents. Yeah, so this is the first of two um, Pan-Africa events that AWO is organizing. And by Pan-Africa, basically, what that means is that she's promoting it to her fellow NGOs in different parts of Africa and opening up the, um, you know, the link to people. And she's hoping to have anywhere from 
you know, 100 to 150 people on the webinar. And um, as you can see in the show notes, I listed some of the questions that she's hoping that we can discuss. And I certainly recommend that people take a look at them because honestly, it's exactly the same questions that we've been discussing Jethro for the last two and a half years, you know, and, and raising cyber ethical kids goes directly to this stuff as, as does, you know, cyber traps are expecting moms and dads and so forth. Yeah. Well, I'm, I think that that's going to be a cool thing. I'm looking forward to that and hopefully we can get a good recording of it and share it here on the podcast as well. If that's okay with, with everybody who's, who's creating it. I think being able to share what's going on in Africa is just uh, really exciting to me. And I'm, I'm excited to see what else you guys do. Well, and I should let people know that, you know, all of this material that you and I are discussing right now, um, I'm going to share with the Fulbright people in, in the form of our podcast so that they can get a sense of the kind of stuff that was taking place. And I'm sure they'll be thrilled about that. Well, and I think what's really cool is uh, anytime you can have some uh, reporting or accountability about what you're doing on a trip like this to say, you know, here's here's a weekly update of what's happening. I think that that's a really powerful thing as well. And so I'm glad that we get to share it with people also, and people get to hear from you while you're really there in Africa. I mean, I think that's, that's really cool. Um, all right, well, let's uh, change gears and talk about uh, the problem with deep fakes, <laughs> because there was a, uh, an issue this year or this last week, um, uh, in New York about students creating a deep fake video of a middle school principal saying uh, some pretty racist, incredible stuff. And um, this is like, this is the kind of thing that we have to deal with when we, when you and I were younger, you know, we had to worry about kids writing uh, Mr. Jones is a bad word on the bathroom stall. And now we, we have to worry about people creating videos of principals doing stuff um, that they never did. And, and that is just wild well, to think of that. It, it is wild. And, and well, there's a bunch of different stuff to, to touch on. Number one, this is going to be the lead story for the Cybertraps newsletter. Please go to newsletter.cybertraps.com if you want to get a copy of this in your inbox and see what yes. I have to say about it. Um, the other thing I feel in the interests of, of full disclosure uh, that I should uh, reveal is that I did an underground newspaper when I was in high school and yes. said some perhaps less than flattering things about some of my my uh, principals and teachers. I didn't put words in their mouth, so I feel good about that. But, you know, kids have been playing with their teachers and their principals for a long time. I think what is particularly disturbing about this incident, number one, is the technology, of course, which you and I talk about all the time. And then number two, the sheer viciousness of what they did. And that, that I think, represents a disturbing change in our society writ large. I mean, just the, the, the thought process that kids would have to go through to get to this is really, really scary. And I, I'd love to get your thoughts on that. But just real quickly, some of the details of this, this involved the school district uh, 
think in upstate New York, Carmel Central School District. I'm sure they'll love the publicity. But uh, the gist of it basically was that some videos appeared on TikTok in late January, early February, and they consisted of a video of the middle school principal with a voice overlay that purported to be him saying extremely racist, anti-Black, anti-Latino things, and on a couple of occasions purporting to make a threat against his own middle school. And I will say, as someone who has looked at stills of the videos and read the descriptions, that these were clearly pretty crude efforts. So it's a video of the principal, but the words being spoken don't match his lip movements. And there's you know a whole bunch of other stuff that was really amateurish. I say that with a, I think, with the need to let people know that you could do a much more sophisticated version of this without a lot of trouble. And one of the things about the combination between this technique of deep fakes and artificial intelligence is that the software tools are emerging right now that allow you to take video of someone or even enough still photos, which is remarkable, and feed it into a video generator with words and the video generator will make that face move in such a way that it matches the words being said. And it's not hard to imagine that being misused for harassment purposes, for political purposes, um, who knows what. And it's going to really, really challenge our ability to engage in critical thinking. Well, I mean, here's the thing that's crazy to me is that this... It, one, it doesn't have to be sophisticated or effective or like really high quality for people to see it and start believing it. And like that, that just doesn't have, that's not a requirement. You know, these kinds of inflammatory things spread so fast and are so destructive and corrosive that it doesn't even need to be that great for it to have an impact. Even if somebody said they saw a video of him doing this and just shared a screenshot of one, uh, like one caption with the screenshot would be a huge issue that, um, you know, you, you don't even have to go that far to do it. And you could do a much better job. Like both of those realities still exist. Right. And so mm -hmm. the thing that is really challenging is that especially in our <coughs> society right now, we have a tendency to judge first and deal with everything else later if we deal with it at all. And and this is where people can really have their whole careers ruined by um, somebody making something up that is not real at all. Yeah, no, that's, I mean, that's a, that's a huge problem. And my sense of it is, and I hope I'm correct about this, that school boards and communities have gotten slightly better about thinking about things first and then reacting. I remember when I first started looking at this stuff, um, you know, a kid would set up a fake website about a teacher that made him look like he was some kind of awful person. And the teacher would get fired like two days later. And then the school board three weeks or a month later would say, wait a minute, we found the kid who did that. You know, so there was a real um, disconnect between 
what school boards thought or superintendents thought kids could do and what they actually could do. I think my sense is, and you talk to a lot of principals all the time, we're much more aware of the tech skills of kids now than we used to. And that helps a little bit. Um, it doesn't necessarily help us in terms of preventing this, but at least we understand the kids could conceivably do something like this. And so we need to investigate a little more thoroughly. Yeah. And, you know, it, it is, it is, it's not technically hard for them to, to do this stuff. And if we believe that it, that it is hard or that only, you know, computer programmers have the ability to do this, that is definitely not the case. And, and we all need to wake up to that reality. You know, I think um, one of the issues uh, in the, uh, in in the Vice article, at least that I read about this, said that um, one of the parents was upset that they did not um, do something to deal with the situation and take it seriously. And this brings up, I think, a really challenging question of how how seriously should we take things if the school, you know, should the school put the district put the school in lockdown? and go you know find that guy and make sure that he's not a threat when it could be pretty obvious that it's a deep fake um do those things need to happen if if you know that this there's no way this is real and you know that i've dealt with situations like this it's a very difficult delicate thing to to do you definitely want to take things seriously but at the same time when you know that there's not a threat and everything is under control, then you don't need to overreact um, in order to um, to take care of the situation when that's not really the case. We had a, a, a philosophy in one of my districts when it related to, uh, to suicide is that um, when students were experiencing suicidal ideation, we would overreact but under sensationalize, which mm. that was our, our way of saying, we're going to do everything we can to ensure that that one particular student is taken care of safe and is not going to harm themselves. Um, but we are not going to talk about this, spread it around. We're not going to let other people know, like we're not going to make this a, a big deal. And I think that this reaction is one of the places where we're really still struggling that we don't know the right answer to that. And, you know, if, I'm thinking about the school district saying, we know who this guy is. We've worked with him for a long time. We see this video and don't believe that it is credible at all that he would say or do any of these things. In my mind, there's no reason to shut down the school, but there certainly is a reason to make sure that we have eyes on that guy, that we know where he's at and what he's doing and that we do an investigation. But that doesn't mean that we need to shut down the school uh, and and stop all the all the processes and work in place um because somebody posted something i mean that that would be that would that would cause a lot of things to to happen once kids figured out they could uh cancel school by doing this kind of stuff right so well sure what are your thoughts that, on that? that's well i think that's that's correct i mean don't don't give kids an inch on on the shut down the school thing because that can easily be abused. I think that the issue here, to be honest with you, Jethro, was that some of the parents in the district, 
particularly in the uh, you know in the communities that were targeted by the language, felt like that information was not provided by the school when it started talking about this incident. So I think there was um, maybe from the school's perspective, they were trying not to over sensationalize it. But given the fact that specific communities were targeted, um, it was upsetting to them that they weren't given the context of the videos, like what was actually contained. And another piece that rise into, rise, arises with respect to this is I didn't get a sense from any of the coverage that I read that anyone had any concerns about the middle school principal. It was so ludicrous on its face that, you know, that wasn't really the issue. I think the more compelling issue, and this is one I wanted to talk with you about, is whether we should as a school, as a as educators or as a nation, I'm not sure how you want to phrase that, but maybe reassess the concept of student privacy in the context of incidences like this or incidents like this. And what I'm referring to specifically is at the end of the day, there were three high school students who were disciplined for creating these videos, which were hurtful, upsetting, not seriously threatening, but superficially threatening. And I, I can understand, and I grapple with this, I don't know the answer, but I can understand the school community sense that it's going too far to not identify the students and state what the punishment was for doing this. And I could see that having a prophylactic effect on future incidents. And I'd, I'd like to get your thoughts on that. It's a tricky one. Yeah, this, this one is tricky because um, the, the reality is, and this is my personal philosophy about discipline. So I'm gonna say my personal philosophy first and then talk about it from like a school context. Um, every single person needs the smallest intervention possible to actually change behavior and so if if it is a conversation with them and that changes their behavior then and and they know not to do it then that is in almost every situation good enough and that's what we want as educators is if we want the learning to happen and them to not do this kind of a thing again and so I would start, I would start there saying that when it comes down to it, though, in, in education, like you, there is a prophylactic response that, that helps people see, I should not do this myself. And, you know, when, when other kids see that someone gets suspended or kicked out of school or expelled or has to stay after school or has to do community service then they say, okay, if I don't want those things, then I then I shouldn't be doing this same type of behavior. And the reality is, is that honestly, that really doesn't work all that well in most cases. And kids don't really care what the punishment is. And most of the tools that we have for punishment, like taking kids out of school, don't actually prevent other kids from doing those same things because the ones that it would work on they're they're already not going to do those things. The ones that it doesn't work on, um, they see that as like a bonus. You know, when I was a kid and I got in trouble, I was like, oh, I don't have to go to school. 
bonus. So if I don't show up to school enough, I get punished by not having to go to school. Okay. I think I'm going to stop going to school because the punishment is the same thing that I've been doing. And kids who, who don't care about that stuff understand that. And uh, especially in after the pandemic, when we canceled school and told everybody that everything we said was really important about school was just made up because we can cancel it in, in a moment, in a weekend, um, kids now understand that we've made up a lot of things and that those things don't actually matter as much as we've always claimed they have. And I think that that's a really important thing that we have to be aware of, that kids get it and they know that um, that that things don't matter like we always told them they did. And we have to be prepared for that. So I I don't know that there's a, a perfect right answer to this. Um, identifying the kids, the thing is everybody in the school knows who those kids are. Is it worthwhile for them to be identified publicly? I, I would hmm. say certainly not. I, I don't think that that'll be helpful. I think the repercussions are too great for that. Um, but if you... If anybody has a Facebook friend who is in this school district, you can find out exactly who they are. I mean, that's that's the only connection that it would take because everybody in the community, I'm sure, knows exactly who did it and has a pretty good idea what their punishments are. And because that stuff spreads around the schools and, you know, what I don't want is for those kids to now start getting death threats or be harassed or attacked Um in a similar or close manner. Right. And and I think the calculus has changed. I mean, the fact that we've got social media and the internet makes that kind of publicity a bigger punishment than it might otherwise be. Um, and, and I do think that that can make it disproportionate to what's actually taking place here. Um, but I, 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 I think it's it's still a tough call. It's still an interesting dilemma that we face because we're trying to figure out the right proportional response to something that kids should not be doing. And, and this maybe tangentially brings us to the cultural shifts that we've talked about many times, that um, whether it's the coarsening of, of culture through you know the internet or politics or whatever else it is, you know, there's there's a tendency for kids to say things that I honestly don't necessarily think they would have said 20 or 30 years ago. Um, I could be wrong. I could just be naive, but, but this somehow does feel a little bit different. I think there's also some, uh, some awareness of, we don't know what to do with these technologies yet. And we don't know, um, we don't know how to manage them as a society. And I mean, just looking at the advancements from just open AI in the last uh, six months is mind boggling. They didn't start working on this when everybody in the world found out about chat GBT, right? They've been working on this for years and have been, been trying to figure out how to do it. Uh, it sounds like they're trying to do it in a responsible and appropriate way. But the thing is, is you can't control what people do with the technology once it is out there in the wild. And um, as much as you, as much as you try to, people will still find a way to use it for what they want to use it for. 
and so I don't think we as a society have a good idea of, of how to manage this yet. The irony is, as I started to say, um, is that we, we, that is to say the governments of the world, spend hundreds of billions of dollars every year trying to keep nuclear, advanced nuclear technology out of the hands of people who should not have it, right? Because of the potential harm. On the other hand, we create open APIs for technology like ChatGPT without thinking about the fact that really malevolent people will try to use this software in ways we can't predict. And you know, I think sometimes we we don't we we want this to seem innocent because it can't wipe out a city in one go but it can do much more destructive things to a culture as a whole. And that's one of the things we're grappling with right now. I don't know if you've had a chance to do it, but I've just started to play with ChatGPT4, which the folks at OpenAI just released about a week ago. And already you can see on an order of magnitude how much more powerful that version of the LLM large learning module is. And it's, you know, you know where this is going. You were, you were harassing me about the PS yeah. model numbers, right? So, okay, we're at, you know, chat GPT-4. By the time I get back to the U.S., we could be up to five. I mean, it's insane totally. how fast this is going to iterate. So, Well, here, here's the thing. They actually, I know for a fact when they released it, because I was doing a presentation on AI at the Utah Technology Conference on Wednesday, and as I was opening up ChatGPT to demonstrate something that I had done previously, uh, it said, hey, ChatGPT4 is here. Do you want to try it? And I, and all my demos for that didn't work because it was getting hit so hard that I wasn't able to, to have any of the demos work. I mean, like that is, it, mm-hmm. it, it was very cool. I haven't played with it as much as I would want to. And I would like because I was presenting and then traveling, but like it is it is changing very fast and um and i mean personally i think it's really exciting and i'm enjoying it but at the same time it is a little um we're not ready for it i i do know that nope. and and we, there's we are totally not <laughs> yeah and it's it's really amazing look i'll i'll give you a heads up i you know next week when we talk um i'll recap the chief information security officer conference that I'm going to be working or delivering at next Friday. And I'm doing a presentation on ransomware as a service. And I've been putting some queries related to that into ChatGPT. It is legit scary how yeah. good the information is and how well organized it can be. So just on a whim, I said, prepare for me 15 slides on ransomware as a service. And boom, there you go. And that took less than 15 seconds to put together mm-hmm. a well-organized, well-structured presentation. Now, obviously, it's not the one I'm going to deliver, but there are pieces of it that are really relevant. Yeah. It's it's just insane. I know. I've, I've been doing a lot of my presentations and uh, a lot of my writing with the assistance of ChatGPT. And it's... It's pretty incredible. I mean, for me, my hardest thing is starting with a blank page and 
Mm -hmm. When I start with a blank page, it's really tough. But when I have something there and I say, this is what I want to talk about and give me some ideas like that makes it much easier for me to, to get the ball moving. And, uh, you know, I'm really grateful for that. It's awesome. But at the same time, like there's, I, I wonder if that's making me like be less thoughtful because I'm just taking that. But in reality, I think it's actually helping me do something better because I'm getting different ideas and I'm recognizing that I can challenge it and say, that's not what I'm looking for. I want something else. And it's more like having a conversation with a, another human being saying, what do you think about this idea? Let's bounce this off. That's honestly more what it feels like to me. Yeah. Well, and, and certainly people are, you know, it is a chat bot, right? So people are actually beginning to form relationships with the chat GPT because they're having these deeply personal back and forths about the whole thing. I, you know, I will put in the uh, show notes, the um, link to the video that I gave up in Alaska on uh, the chat GPT thing. Cause I think that people might enjoy seeing a couple of the old chatbots that I demoed as part of that. So for instance, the original one, Eliza, which was developed in the 1960s, hysterically archaic in terms of how it handles queries and so forth. But you can you can really see the goal has been for the last 60 years to create something artificial that we can interact with. And we are way close right now. It's really amazing. Yeah, it's it's very true. Well, I'm I'm excited to chat with you next week. And we also have an interview uh, coming out before we sign off. Why don't you tell us a little bit about that interview that you recorded there in Ghana? Well, actually, it wasn't recorded here in Ghana, to be fair. It was recorded oh, uh, before, just before I left. But I had to uh, I actually had to set up remote access to my computer, which is where it was uh, islanded and get it up onto Dropbox. Oh, so nice. I managed work. to accomplish that. But in any case, the uh, interview was with someone that you and I both met at PPI, a professor, a law professor um, from the University of Utah named Amos Giora, who is involved in one of the organizations I'm involved in uh, uh, called Sesame, which is designed to stop the uh, passing of the trash, quote unquote, the you know, the, the phenomenon that allows a teacher who's committed uh, sexual assault or inappropriate conduct with a student to quietly move on to uh, another school district. And so uh, we had a great conversation with Mr. Giora up in um, Boise uh, when we were there for PPI. And he was telling us about his most recent book, Armies of Enablers, Survivor Stories of Complicity and Betrayal in sexual assault and basically he was building off of the u.s gymnastics uh tragedy slash you know controversy uh in which it was a dr nissen i think uh was convicted of um uh, harassing and sexually assaulting dozens if not hundreds of gymnasts it was absolutely horrible set of circumstances and Professor Giora is making the argument that in order for him to have gotten away with that, there had to be, quote unquote, armies of enablers who covered up for him, 
who protected the institution, protected U.S. gymnastics, so on and so forth. And what he is really pushing for is a better awareness of these enablers out there and the ability of victims to recover from people who cover up or assist the person who actually made the or did the assault. So very, very compelling research, uh, a very compelling book. Uh, he's working on a new project now to write, really dig into this in more detail. Uh, great interview. So I really do hope that people will listen to it. Great. That'll be coming out here in a few days. So if you're not subscribed already, make sure you do subscribe to this podcast and also to the newsletter, newsletter.cybertraps.com. And uh, Fred's putting out a lot of great stuff from Africa. So you'll definitely want to check that out. Well, and we'll have a good, good section on ransomware as a service for our next podcast. Uh, since uh, with a little bit of an assist from ChatGPT, I'm yeah. getting some good material put together for that. And uh, I will be fascinated to see what the conference is like. There'll be chief information security officers from around uh, this region, um, actually from across Africa. So it's a real honor to be included in the, in the lineup of folks. So I'm looking forward yeah. to that. Well, that wraps up this episode of the Cybertraps podcast. In the coming weeks, we will continue our coverage of emerging trends in a variety of areas, including digital misconduct, cyber safety, cybersecurity, privacy, and the challenges of high-tech parenting. Along the way, we'll talk to our growing collection of international experts who are helping us understand the risks and the rewards of digital technology. You are able to find the Cybertraps podcast on all your favorite podcast apps. We hope that you'll share the show with your friends and colleagues and reach out to us if you have questions or topic suggestions. If you would like to follow us on Twitter, I'm at Cybertraps and Jethro is at Jethro Jones. If you're still listening, you must have enjoyed the podcast. Please take a moment to leave us a five-star rating and review it in your podcast service. We appreciate having you in our audience and look forward to having you join us for our next episode. There are lots of solutions out there for giving students what they need when they need it. But when do they actually do all of those things? You need flexible time. When added into your master's schedule, flex time enables students to get extra help or intervention, meet with teachers, make up work, get physical exercise, and try new enrichment offerings. If you're thinking of giving it a try, Check out MyFlex Learning, which unlocks the benefits of flexible time without all the headaches you get with it usually. Its intuitive design and SIS integration makes implementation and training a breeze. Make your flex time work for you. Visit myflexlearning.com BE to learn more and receive $500 off your first year. That's myflexlearning.com BE. Do you want to save time on prep work, increase student achievement for all of your students? reliably meet tier one standards you can do it all but don't waste another minute head straight to ixl.com b to learn how ixl's research proven teaching and learning platform can help you achieve these goals that's ixl.com b e